magnificent. You are glorious. You are beautiful. You're amazing. And God, I, I say that because, Lord, as I read the Gospels and I, and, I, and I look at your son, Jesus, I see God. I see a God who is amazing and gracious, compassionate, perfect, just, just, just way cool. And God, I'm just asking, Lord, that um, you would make yourself known through your word today. So uh, just approach that humbly, God. God, I'm just asking that you would speak through your word and that you would um, just encourage the body here, God. I'm praying that if um, the spirit needs to convict or just, I'm just praying, God, this, that we would simply give the spirit freedom to do whatever the spirit wanted to do. That's conviction, encouragement, whatever else, God. We would just, we would just open, open our hearts and minds. So, God, uh, we also pray against um, everything the enemy attempts to do. We know that as the word goes out, the enemy attempts to, to take those seeds. We just pray against the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ, who, who has all power. Everything has been given to Jesus. So, God, I just um, approach your word with that reality that you would just, I'm just thankful that you speak through your word and you choose to use imperfect people. Just thank you for the gospel, God. Thank you that um, you love us, Lord. And I'm just praying today that people would just be given a glimpse, a better glimpse of Jesus. And they would more so fall in love with their Savior, who is worthy of praise. And it's in that wonderful name we pray. Amen. Morning, everyone. Almost, uh, almost, or are we? Yeah, we're actually, we're afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> um, something just been pondering a lot about is um, my own view of, of how I see Jesus. And um, everyone has some kind of perception of Jesus, Right? Some people think he's cool, right? Yeah, Jesus is way cool. There have been T-shirts that have been made that Jesus is my homeboy. Um, some people will say, oh, Jesus was just, um, he was a pretty, pretty cool prophet. I mean, he knew a couple things here and there. And we all have these different perceptions. But one of the things that's just been stirring inside of me is like, do I, do I really have the right view of Jesus? And I'm thinking that um, so often I live my life like with just um, a very dull flavor, because I have a dull view of Jesus. I think every day that we wake up and, you know, when we get into the word and we really look in Jesus, there should, be, there should really be a fire that is set in our hearts. And as we, as we look at Jesus, we should, we should literally, like, our, our, our mouths should drop to the ground and we should just be like, oh, my goodness. He is so amazing. And I know that, um, you know, because of my, you know, just because of my own, pitfalls and my own sins that I sometimes, I mean, oftentimes I fail to see him as he is. And the question is, how do you view Jesus? I think we live in a day and age where people um, have, you know, even Christians in the church, people have this ultra high view of self and low view of God. And when you have a low view of God, you have a low view of sin. 
the sad fact is there are many Christians who are just oblivious to this fact. I mean, we may not blatantly be, um, you know, we may not blatantly be like, you know, in, in, in like immorality. But how else does the sin of pride manifest in our own lives? You ever think about the sin of saying, you know what, God, I'm going to do it my way, not yours. So definitely an offensive sin. And what I wanted to do today is just I wanted us to set our gaze on Jesus. Okay? I'm praying that as we look at this scripture and as we look at this passage, that you would just get even just a little clear picture of Jesus and that it would just stir your hearts and that you would fall more in love with him. Amen. And we're going to look at the scripture. Um, you know, we're going to be talking today's Palm Sunday. All right. And what I love about Cornerstone is I've been meeting so many different people from different um, church backgrounds, right? We, I mean, we even got people that, that, were, that used to be atheists and that were saved and people that, that were into some weird, you know, weird, uh, weird different things. And they, got, they met Jesus and they got saved. And we also got people that got saved from, from Sunday school, right? I mean, um, like, for example, I grew up in a, uh, in, in a Catholic tradition. Maybe some of you were Presbyterian, Baptist, uh, and there's also different flavors of Baptist. You have independent Baptist, Southern Baptist. I mean, you name it, you've got, you've got um, I don't know if I said Methodist already, and there's just different, uh, different denominations and different beliefs. And, um, you know, some, some denominations celebrate what's called a liturgical, you know, their, uh, liturgical calendar. They base everything they do on significant events, you know, for example, like the fact that at Cornerstone we're going to have a Good Friday service and an Easter service. That's some form of, of liturgy, okay? So don't, don't be offended by Palm Sunday. It's not, it's not like this just Catholic thing or, you know, Presbyterian thing. It's, it's in the Bible, okay? And um, it's, uh, <laughs> so don't be offended, all right? Um, but it's, it's there that we're going to look at this coronation, and let's even think about even our own views of coronation, right? We look at, we think of coronation and we think of, uh, um, we think of, you know, something that's got to be all like bedazzled out, you know, like, you know, these carriages and, and crowns and everything. And, and I think all of us in here, we also have like this, you know, this limited view of, of a coronation. And we're going to look at the coronation of the humble King Jesus and how he came into Jerusalem. All right. So with that, let's uh, go to the 19th chapter of Luke. And we're going to read verse 28 through 44. The triumphal entry. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage, And Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, 
the very stones would cry out. 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is the word of the Lord. So to give you a little background information, okay, looking at Jesus here, remember that he's been in Jericho, which is down at the Dead Sea, below sea level, 17 miles straight up to Jerusalem. And after coming down from Galilee, where he had been for a little while, he went through Perea, east of the Jordan, came back across the Jordan at Jericho, then headed for Jerusalem. It's Passover season. So you can imagine that this is a crazy time of year. Okay? Everybody is coming to Jerusalem. Many people come that way. So here he is, Jesus, with this huge crowd of pilgrims that are with him leading up to the days. And the crowd around him is much larger than anyone else because, after all, th- these past three years, he's been, he's been given teaching that they've, like, just never heard before, just blown away. They, he's, he's performed miracles, and he's just, I mean, he's world famous at this point. So he goes through Jericho, and as you remember, in Jericho, stops for two days. And there he handles some business there, right? He, he heals two blind men, blind beggars who then become not only healed, but forgiven of their sin, and they become now disciples of Jesus, and they're, they're part of this group. This group is growing and growing and growing. And you'll read earlier in Luke 19, and he encounters a chief tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus, all right, the most hated man in his area. And Zacchaeus gets saved. Jesus preaches the gospel. Zacchaeus gets saved. And this, 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 this band of disciples is growing and growing. And a few weeks prior to this, Jesus did a pretty cool thing. You know what that was? He raised someone from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. So I tell you this because now it's, you have to understand that, man, Jesus is known everywhere, all right? There's not, I mean, if you, if you don't, haven't heard the name of Jesus, you're like, you know, where have you been? You've been hiding under a rock, you know, these, these past three years. And we see Jesus, okay, with this large crowd, and he's headed into Jerusalem for a purpose, and we all know why, right? I mean, we have the full written word and account here. We know why Jesus is going. We know that he's on the way to the cross. He's on the road to Calvary. But the people here that are around him are a little confused. The crowd was excited because in their mind, they're like, hey, the Messiah is here. The, Jesus is the Messiah, and he's here right now. And he was going to usher in the kingdom of God now. And this was going to be evidenced, all right, by liberating liberating them from their oppressors, the empire of Rome. And their thinking is like this. Jesus is here, right? He's going to deliver us. Just as he delivered us out of Egypt, okay? The Messiah is here, the one that we all know about and we've been waiting for, and he's going to deliver us from the nation of Rome. So even though they were confused and they had this kind of this discombobulated view of the Messiah, they were right. The Messiah was indeed here but he was on a different mission than they had thought. He was on the pathway to the cross and he was fully aware. And he indeed was ushering in the kingdom of God. He was bringing salvation to all people, Jews and Gentiles included. And he was going as an innocent lamb to the slaughter 
to die in the place of wicked sinners because only he could be a pleasing sacrifice acceptable to God. And what is interesting in this account is that prior to this event, Jesus never allowed this kind of open public display in his ministry. He was always the Messiah. He was always King Jesus, worthy of worship. But when other opportunities arose, he withdrew from them or he, he silenced people, right? And you're wondering, okay, why now? Jesus, why are you now going to make this, like, you know, are you going to, you know, allow this public gathering of people to to come? You know why? Because it's God's time. From the very beginning of his ministry, the religious leaders were intimidated by him. And it, it didn't take them very long to begin to hate him. Very early in his life, in his ministry, they wanted him dead. I mean, the plots to execute Jesus, they, they happened very early in his ministry. So he knew that, um, I mean, if he were to do this public gathering display, it would begin to set things in motion. Keeping in mind, this is Palm Sunday. Now it's time for him to die. Now it's the time to inflame his enemies. That's to be fit. It's exactly the right time because guess what? Jesus needs to be on the cross by Friday. He wants to set this thing in motion at such a massive level, such a huge display that the leaders of Israel can, can wait no longer to eliminate him. And because he wants to die by God's plan, and he'll die on Friday because guess what? Friday is the Passover when all Passover lambs were slain, and he is the one true sacrifice for sin pictured in all the other sacrifices. So you look at his timing, all right? You look at... Everything that is occurring, this is not by mere chance. These aren't just like, the the Gospels aren't just these random events stringed together. Let's see where, you know, this fits here, this fits here. No, Jesus is fully in control, fully aware. The plan is initiated. He knows exactly what he is doing. Isn't that amazing? So this public display must happen now, and only now at the greatest possible level, level. The exposure of interest in him must reach, right, to threaten his enemies. And there were a lot of people in Jerusalem at this time. It's estimated that there's about 2 million people there, okay, a lot of people. I grew up on the island of Oahu, right? There's almost a million people on that island. So whenever you, like, step onto that island, you just just can't help but feel contained, like, like it's overpopulated. You walk through Waikiki, and you're just shocked at what masses of people there are there. And now it's, like, here in Jerusalem, about 2 million people for the Passover season, and some theologians guesstimate that as Jesus is, is marching, right? I mean, they're going and doing, doing this Passover, or not Passover, Palm Sunday. It's about a quarter of a million people is guesstimated. That's quite a following, right? If you had a quarter of a million people on your Twitter feed, you'd be a pretty well-known person, right? It's a, just a massive amount. It's huge. And this act, all right, it pressed all the buttons of his enemies, all right? It got under their skin, and Jesus knew what he was doing. And what they did out of hatred... Right as the, as the enemies, enemies of God had acted, was determined. It's what God determined. This is how it was going to roll out. This is God's plan. I think one of the most difficult theological things for me to grasp, grasp on was that, you know, when they asked the question, who killed God? Some people will say the Jews did. Some people will say the Romans did. You know who really killed God? Or you know who really killed Jesus? It's God. It was the will of God to crush him and for a very specific purpose, for the forgiveness of sins, for the redeeming of a people, to make peace with God. 
And Jerusalem had to be the place because Jerusalem was where all sacrifices were made. That's where the altar was. That's where the city, the temple was. That's, that Jerusalem was God's city. It had to occur there. So don't be surprised. This is the plan of God. This was not a mere accident or coincidence or just some random string of events. The Messiah comes. It must happen in the city in this year. And it must happen on Friday when the Passover lambs are executed. Because remember, everything in the Old Testament is like all these sacrifices were foreshadowing of greater things to come. Read Hebrews, study Hebrews, and you'll just begin to develop this richer understanding of how everything in the Old Testament, I mean, was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So he knows what he's doing. He knows what time it is on God's calendar. He's on, he's perfectly operating on, on God's clock. But as he goes, he also faces the great horror of his life. As he goes, he faces death unknown to the eternal living God. He not only faces death, but he also faces separation from God because there's going to be a point when there's just this chasm in the, in the Trinity because of sin, the sins you and I commit. And it's a horrific thing. We couldn't comprehend. And do you remember when Jesus had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, Father, let this cup pass from me. And some people have wondered, why would, why would he say that? If he's God and he's determined to do the will of God, why would he say that? Maybe a simple explanation is that's because that's something a perfect, righteous man would say. A perfectly righteous man would have to say, God, don't treat me as a sinner. He would have to say, had no choice but to say that. And it's a pure revelation that he is a perfectly righteous person. It's a prayer of someone who wants nothing to do with sin. It's a necessary desire of a perfectly righteous person. So all those thoughts are in his mind as he comes. The people are thinking, this could be the moment that Jesus brings in the kingdom. This could be the moment that he conquers the Romans. This could be the moment that he fulfills the promises given to Abraham and David. This could be the moment that Israel is raised to greater glory. This is the moment when we become the jewel of the earth. This is the moment when all the prophets have said about the future comes to pass. This is our all-glorious moment. The king comes to reign. So this is what's going on around Jesus. No pressure, right? But what's going on inside of him is that this is the king coming to die. Jerusalem is the end of the journey. And here he comes to face his greatest challenge and achieve his greatest salvation work. And the people, all they can think about is he's going to come and bring us glory. Tells you a little something about us people, doesn't it? How can you serve us, Jesus? How can you liberate us and bring us glory, Jesus? What can you do for us, Jesus? Not much of man has changed over these years. Back to the coronation. Perhaps you look at this event and you're like, man, it's really simplistic and um, and superficial. You just look at the crowd, right? This is going to be the same crowd. Everyone that's saying, Hosanna, we love you, Jesus. You're number one in our book. It's going to be the same crowd that days later are going to be, crucify him. So, yes, pretty superficial. But in spite of this fact, this is a real coronation of a king. Because you know why? Jesus is really God's king. Amen? He's worthy of all worship. He's worthy of all praise. So that's where we begin in verse 28. He said these things. And what is he referring to? 
most likely the parable that comes before this passage. And he was going on to ascending to Jerusalem, right? And he's not going to enter this, this place as a warrior king to conquer and to reign. He's going to enter as a sacrifice for sin to die and rise again. So he's not coming as this conqueror on a white horse, all right? Now, keep in mind, Revelation paints a picture of Jesus' second coming, right? And when Jesus comes back, all right, to judge, judge the nations, he's going to come back as a rider on a white horse, okay? And, like, there's not going to be people around that are going to be like, hey, who's that? Okay? Everyone's going to know immediately. That's what signifies what's written on his leg that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But what John is trying to tell us is no one's going to doubt who this is. This is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, so when Jesus does come back, all right, it's going to be a lot different. But in this initial coronation, all right, he's coming as he entered the world as a humble king. If you remember, right, Jesus was born in a feeding trough. He had very humble beginnings to show that he was the ultimate humble servant who was going to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's now in this coronation that this humble Jesus is coming, okay, not on a white horse, because if this was a Roman, they would be ride, the general would be riding on the white horse. So he wasn't coming as a warrior king. He's coming as a peacemaker on a donkey's colt. He is king. He is king. But he has to do something. He has to do something with sin before he can bring his kingdom. 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Now, right near the city of Jerusalem, okay, two miles east is a town called Bethany. And that's where Mary and Martha are from as well as Lazarus, all right? This is like Jesus' home base in that area. The old name Bethany is, it means uh, the house of, di- house of dates. Bethphage, we really don't know where it is. It's the only time that it's mentioned here in the scriptures. But we know that it was a town relatively close to Bethany, and it possibly means house of figs or overripe figs. And then there's the Mount of Olives. So you get a little idea that this was a pretty agricultural culture, Figs, dates, olives, and the Mount of Olives, right, directly opposite of the Temple Mount. So both, both are on the east side, both villages on the east side of the Mount of Olives, so that they can't see Jerusalem because they're down and they're below the crown of the hill. So you don't see the city until you actually peak the Mount of Olives. Then it appears. So in other words, they're still below the hill on the backside, unable to see the great glorious city. And Jesus sends two of his disciples, verse 30, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. So most likely, possibly they're in Bethany. That's where they stayed. So he's possibly sending them to Bethphage. The only time it's mentioned in the Bible here. Don't know much about it. And it's there that you're going to find this colt tied in which no one has ever sat. And then 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it, so those who were sent, to, sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. This account is simply amazing. Because it just shows you the omniscience of Jesus, that he's all-knowing. He knows everything. He didn't make arrangements ahead of time. Okay? He didn't, like, plan this and you know, went, went there and said, okay, disciples, you wait here. I'm going to go plan this, okay, so that everything's all set up. He knew this because he was fully divine. One of the central Christian beliefs is that Jesus was both fully God and fully human, 100% God, 100% human. 
We know that God at times placed a limit on his divinity, and at times he exercised it. And you have to think that this scene is pretty comical, right? Um, I don't know about you, but my imagination goes off sometimes when I read the Bible. We don't know which disciples that Jesus had sent. We can only guess. But I, but I picture these two guys getting dressed in, like, camo, all right? Like, as I was reading this passage, and then, like, you know, they're, they're rubbing the, the black on their eyes, you know? And, and as, I, as I'm reading this text, I'm hearing the Mission, the mission Impossible theme going on. Dun, 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 dun. And these guys are, like, marching around, you know, Bethlehem looking for this cult, right? And it's, it's, Jesus gives them this command, like, you're going to go to this village, and you're going to find this, this cult that has never been ridden on, and it's going to be tied up. I mean, talk about a little step of faith there, okay? Maybe, maybe a side lesson there could be like sometimes Jesus asks us to do some, you know, strange things. He just wants us to trust him, right? But these disciples, they go, and they find this cult. And you could picture them. They're like, maybe they're sneaking around. I don't know about you, but I would be like nervous. I'm taking someone's animal, right? It's like taking someone's personal possession. So I would be creeping around this village and like really careful, like, okay, here's a cult, all right, coming up and beginning to untie it. And as they're untying it, what happens? Hey, why are you untying that? And I would freeze. And I would look to my buddy and say, let's just tell him what Jesus told us to say. The Lord, the Lord needs it. And the guy's like, it's all good. Go take it. Kind of a comical encounter, right? But then you think about the response from this person that owned it. And it's, 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 it shouldn't surprise us because this was a very reasonable request. You have to think, remember, we had built this up and that Jesus had had his, I mean, he was, he was, he was well known. I mean, he had, a few weeks ago, he had just, he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Pretty impressive, right? And people have heard of it and his name is going forward, all right? And this, this, this owner of, 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 of the cult, you know, with, with Jesus coming, with these two disciples coming saying, Jesus needs this. He's going to be like, dude, that, Amen. The king wants to ride the, my animal. So not very surprising. Perhaps the owners were humbled. The Lord is going to use their animal. Don't be surprised by the Lord's knowledge here. It's just amazing and humbling. He had supernatural knowledge. Don't be freaked out, okay? It's not like modern-day Harry Potter stuff, all right? This is Jesus, the Son of God, who knows all things. And look at John 2, 23 to 25. This is what this is. What is written now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. He knew all things. Okay? Jesus knew everything. He could read the heart. He could not only see people with his omniscience all right, that he couldn't see with his physical eyes, but he could see the heart of everyone. And so it was just the way he said it would be. And they must have experienced that in their life many, many times. So they bring this animal in verse 35. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their garments on the colt, put Jesus on it. Kind of a makeshift saddle on this little foal that's never been ridden. And by the way, Solomon rode a mule in his coronation, 1 Kings 1. David on occasion rode a mule. But our Lord was not trying to identify with Davidic tradition even though he is a son of David, and he's in that line of kings. It's more than that. And what's, what's going on here is this, is Luke doesn't record this, but this is one of, the, one of the two accounts that are written in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
the feeding of the 5,000, and, and, and the triumphant entry. And Matthew shows us that this is a fulfillment of prophecy. In Zechariah, the next to the last book of the Old Testament, is one of the prophecies about the coming Messiah. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And keep in mind that this is written 500 years earlier. Okay? Here we go. Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah said he would come, the Messiah would come riding the donkey's colt. He knew that. He knew that that was the plan. He knew exactly which donkey, which colt, where it was, and how to acquire it. Okay, Jesus was in line with this, all right? Don't be surprised. Matthew's account in chap- Matthew chapter 21, verse 4 through 4. Four through five, it tells us that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Okay, this coming, this Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry, according to the prophet. So we also know that this prophecy, this Old Testament prophecy that was declared then, was explaining that he wasn't going to come as a hero riding on a white horse. Like I said, that's a picture of Revelation when he returns. But that he would come not in earthly splendor to reign in earthly power, but the first time he would come in humility. And why? Why? Why humility? To save and to die and give his life as a ransom for sinners. What does this tell you about Jesus? So many people are, you know, just freaked out by Christianity or, or scared of God. And rightfully so, the Bible tells us to fear God and to revere him. But then we get a more complete picture when we see the heart of Jesus here. He's given his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come into the city on this occasion in wealth, but in poverty. He didn't come in grandeur. He came in meekness. He didn't come to slay Israel's enemies, but he came to save the sinners. And you look at the incarnation. The incarnation is this, is that God in the flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among people. It was a time of humiliation, really. But I tell you what, the next time he comes, it's going to be phase two. You know what that is? Glorification. And by the standards of earthly kings, this is anything but a triumphant entry. That's why we should really call it a humble coronation. But it's exactly what it had to be. It's just what the prophet said to be. Jesus knew that. He knew the prophecy. He knew how to fulfill the prophecy. Jesus said that, right? That everything that written about him testifies about him. It's all about him. And in this, we see that we see his full deity. We see that he is indeed the Messiah. And he comes to the right city on exactly the right day to be offered as the lamb to the people, to be executed on the very day that the Passover lambs are always killed as symbolic sacrifices for sin. Because guess what? Jesus is the real and true sacrifice for sin. That's good news. Say amen. So he comes in the right year. Every detail is on this divine schedule. It's just amazing to me. He's worthy of adoration. King Jesus is here. And in this, he is vindicated as a Messiah, 
by receiving worship, that which belongs only to God? Right? Think about this. I mean, some people say this about God. Well, Jesus was a godly man. Jesus was a righteous man. Jesus was a good man. In this, in this text right here, in this encounter, he's worshipped as God. He received worship. And that's for God and crazy people. Worship, right? It's not, it's not for good people. It's not for wise people. It's, it's, or it's for phonies and frauds. And guess what? With phonies or frauds, they stay dead. So we see here that Jesus is given this praise, 35. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the, on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is an old custom, an ancient custom. Second Kings 9.13 describes it, symbolized uh, that you were submitting. Obviously, uh, if you wanted to show your submission, you could throw yourself under the animal. But that would be pretty silly, wouldn't it? Get yourself hurt. You'll trip the animal, and then, I don't know, king will fall off and get hurt. So what you did was you threw your, clo- your cloak, and it was a symbol, okay, that I am submitting. I'm submitting to your rulership, to your kingship. So they, in effect, were saying, we place ourselves under your feet. That's why thrones were elevated. Symbolic of the submission to the king's majesty and authority. So what, what, what were they saying? They were saying, we place ourselves under your feet, symbolically throwing our robes there. And this thing is beginning to escalate, all right? The disciples really didn't get the full picture. In fact, in, in John 12, it says that when he fulfilled this prophecy, they didn't understand it, but later they did afterwards. They looked back and said, oh, man, Zechariah 9.9. Jesus, you fulfilled that. But in the fervor of the moment, the disciples weren't connecting the dots. In spite of what our Lord said, right? Even the fact that he told them that he was going to be killed. Even the fact that he told them he was going to be raised from the dead. They just weren't connecting the dots. He's going to bring the kingdom. Verse 37. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that had they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So they just get over the edge, right? Mount of Olives. And they can see the city. They could see Herod's magnificent temple with the gold. And it's like high noon and blazing sunlight. It's like sunlight is shining. And it's just like this magnificent uh, picture. It's like a crescendo of their march, you know? And then that's when they begin to get excited, all right? They're like, oh, snap, this is going down right now. It's happening right now. The whole multitude of disciples begin to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. The fervor rises in view of the great city, right? They're now thinking of all these great miracles that have occurred, even recently, the raising of Lazarus, and everyone is just thinking, they have that in their mind. I mean, the the story of the two blind beggars, Zacchaeus. They were beginning to wonder and recite, look at them. 
It all makes sense now. The miracles, the miracles. He's the one. He's the one. He's the one that's going to, that's going to usher in the kingdom. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It's one who comes with divine authority. If you come in the name of the Lord, you come with full divine authority. So they're saying, blessed is God's king. They honor him. They worship him as the one who comes with the full authority of God. And I know it's fickle. It's fickle, right? Because we know that there's going to be a mob of these same people, all right, that are going to be yelling, crucify him. And you know why? Because Jesus didn't meet their expectation. But for the moment, they're just swept away. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're basically borrowing language from the Psalms. Language that anticipates the arrival of the Messiah. Most of the multitude spread their garments on the road. Most of them. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the, on the road. Hence, Palm Sunday. And John twelve thirteen says that they were palm branches. Because palm branches were symbols of joy. This was a celebration. It was a big, big party. And their joy was at a fever pitch. They were throwing down their cloaks. They were cutting down branches throwing them at his feet, symbols of joy. Matthew also indicates that the crowd was divided. There was um, part of the crowd was behind Jesus. Part of the crowd was in front because there was also a crowd following over the hill. And believe me, since he had already been two days in the area, there were people in the city who on the word that he was coming were coming out to the city. They were pouring out to the city and the crowd was growing and growing. John 11.57 tells us this. The chief priest and Pharisees had given orders to anyone who knew where he was to report it so that they might seize him. Well, guess what? They knew where Jesus was. It was right there. Nobody was going to report him. The expectation was so high, the crowds didn't care at all what the Pharisees or scribes said because they were caught up in this frenzy of the moment. And they think this is it. That's why they say this. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What does that mean? They're thinking this. God is finally satisfied. Because they couldn't believe God is at peace as long as Jerusalem's not. Not until the Messiah comes and brings peace to Jerusalem and brings glory to Jerusalem will there ever be peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew adds, Hosanna to the son of David. It's the most common reference to Messiah, son of David. Because in 2 Samuel 7, or 2 Samuel chapter 7, the promise was that David would have a greater son who would have an everlasting and glorious kingdom and fulfill all the promises that have been, forgi- for, have been given. So they, they called Messiah, son of David. Matthew also uses the word Hosanna. And Hosanna means save now. So they're saying save now, save now, save now. They weren't talking about spiritual salvation from sin. They were talking about save us. Save the nation. Save us from Rome. Save us now. And they borrowed the language from Psalm 118, verse 26, sometimes called the Psalm of Salvation or the Conqueror Psalm or a Coronation Psalm. A hundred years before this, Maccabeus, had defeated the Syrians, and the Jews had hailed him with this same 118th Psalm. Maccabeus is dead, and he's still dead. 
It exalts the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's why this Psalm 118 is called a psalm of enthronement. And they made the right application here. This is the king. He is going to save now. This is the son of David. It is time for him to be enthroned. This is finally going to bring peace to heaven and glory in the highest. Just not what they were thinking. Again, what does salvation mean for you? What does Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection mean for you? Is it for some personal reason? Jesus died just to give me a happy life, give me happy things and a happy wife. Mark 11.10 says that in the crowd they were saying, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the coming king. And they thought this was it. They thought that this was the Old Testament promised kingdom coming to fruition, but it wasn't. It was a king, but this king was coming to die, and he had to come to die first. And then Zechariah chapter 12. Someday they'll look on him whom they've pierced, and they'll mourn for him as an only son, and then they'll be cleansed, and then will come the kingdom. Did you catch that? First he had to be pierced. For their sins. And I think one of the central things that you and I have to understand is the holiness of God. We all have this like figment or we all have this picture of of what God is like. And I can't tell you that, you know, as I started to study the holiness of God, all my paradigms of God was shattered. I just realized that I had this, like, this, this, this little God and not this big transcendent God who was holy and magnificent. And if you want to study the holiness of God, you, I mean, I remember going through these, these verses, just reading on the holiness of God and, and how people encountered a holy God. You'll just be, I mean, you'll just be just jaw-dropping. A book I can recommend to you, all right, um, is R.C. Sprawl's The Holiness of God. And what I want to encourage you, take your Bible, read this book, and, and, and just read the references, and you're just going to be blown away about how holy God is and how this holy God had to be pierced for their sins. But he's been given worship now, and the Pharisees are outraged. You know why? Because this, this praise that they're giving to Jesus, it's blasphemy to them to worship any but God, to connect him with heaven and God. And that's why there in, in verse 39, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. This is a blasphemy, Jesus. Put an end to it. Just stop it. Tell them to knock it off. They're being silly. This is, this is unacceptable, Jesus. You, know, you notice something here? Jesus doesn't, he doesn't like, you know, he's not like, oh, my bad. I guess I should stop them. He allows it. Because this is indeed his coronation. You know, he didn't go, whoops, I'm sorry if I offended you. He said, dude, I tell you, if that they become silent, the stones are going to cry out. If, if people aren't going to give me worship, guess what? The rest of creation is going to testify that I'm the son of God and that I am the king. 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Okay, this is profound here. There are a number of words for weeping. One of them, one of the Greek words used in John eleven thirty five over Lazarus. What's the shortest verse there? Jesus wept, right? 
It's a simple word for weeping. But this word here, when it speaks about Jesus weeping, we better pay attention because the Bible doesn't record Jesus weeping much. But here, okay, the word is much stronger. In fact, it's the strongest word in the Greek language. It could be equal to our, to our word of sobbing and heaving. Very strong, the, the strongest, the heavy, sobbing, agonizing, wretching expression of sorrow. No stronger word exists. See, Jesus, he sees Jerusalem, and he's racked with agony. And don't, don't ever think that Jesus delights, okay, in people perishing. That's foolish. Don't ever think that Jesus is like, you know what, I gave you a chance. You're done. I wash my hands of you. No, because how do I know that? Because you look at this passage and he's looking over Jerusalem and he just begins to weep. The son of God who knows everything. I mean, he knows exactly what he's doing and he he knows he's going to die. He knows that they're going to reject him. And yet you see, you see this compassion of Jesus come out that even at this point where he has every right to be selfish, he's weeping because they reject him. He's racked with agony. He begins to heave and sob. You would think that Jesus would be happy with all this attention. A normal person would. A quarter of a million people following you and saying, you're the man. It all looked good, didn't it? On the surface level, it all looked good. But he could see right through it. He wept in the face of their hypocrisy and their shallowness and their rejection in a few days, which he was well aware was coming. And like I said, don't ever think, all right, don't ever think that Jesus delights in the perishing of people. Even these people that hated him, the door was still open. How do I know that? The parable of the lost son, the prodigal. So often we focus on just the younger son. The younger son does represent represent, uh, the sinners, okay? But you forget that the older son, who's just a central figure, the second half of the parable covers his life. Okay, it represents the Pharisees. And if you remember at the end of the story, right, the father comes out to meet the eldest son, all right, and wants him in the party. That's the heart of the father for sinners. We just have different flavors. Okay, and don't ever think, I used to think like, man, if I was a disciple, I wouldn't have done that. Or if I was this person, I would have done that. It's very idiotic of me. Because any of us in this room, okay, we lived back then, we were going to be in one camp, all right? We're going to be disciples fleeing, or we're going to be the people yelling, crucify him. At some point, I mean, we're just, we're fickle. We're all fickle. So don't elevate self. Let's elevate Jesus here. But he could see right through it. And he he also wept because he knew their their condemnation was coming. Jesus marching the road to Calvary, all right? He wasn't giddy and smiling. He wasn't celebrating. Because for him, death was imminent. Crucifixion was there. The weight of sin was upon him. Separation. The fact that Jerusalem refuses Jesus. They rejected him. But guess what? This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Even in spite of people rejecting him, guess what? Jesus marched on. Isn't that amazing? He wasn't like, dude, these people, man, I'm out of here. He kept marching on. What a beautiful picture of God's covenant love for his people. 42, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus wasn't talking about peace with Rome or some political entity. He was speaking of peace with God. And what makes peace with God, people? Repentance. 
faith in Jesus Christ, believing the message of the kingdom. And time and time again, remember, as I said, Jesus telling parables and Jesus just ministering to people, the door was open. Time and time again, the invitation was open to receive salvation. And what does he tell him? Look, guys, if you had known, if you had understood, if you had just embraced and believed this day what, what, he, what, what it was that he was talking about, okay, he wasn't talking about the specific day. He was talking about this moment in time that if you understood that you had the Son of God living among you, preaching the message of salvation to you, if you'd only known that. But unbelief had blinded them all the way along. They chose to be unbelieving, hard-hearted, self-righteous, rejecters of Jesus Christ. Even after invitation, after invitation, they rejected him. Now, one of the tensions that I still struggle with here in the scripture is I know that God's amazing grace and love is not, I mean, his, his arm is, there's never anyone too far from his saving arm. I believe that with all my heart because Paul, uh, Paul writes about that as well. But at the same time, I also see scripture here. All right, where it talks about that there, there comes a point where God just gives us over to our desires and our hearts get hardened. And it's almost like we come, we come to a point of no return. And I just tell you that because there is a tension there in the scriptures. But here is Jesus offering peace with God. And this fact, even though the people are celebrating, they're having a party, they don't, they don't really know what's really going on behind all the scenes. They're thinking Jesus is ushering in the kingdom now. But the fact of the matter is this. What is hidden from their eyes is that they're rejecting Jesus. Then he says in verse 43, for the days will come upon you. Let's break this down real quickly. The days will come upon you. That's an Old Testament expression used many times in the Old Testament. You can jot these down. There's many more. Isaiah 39, 6, Hosea 9, 7, and Amos 4, 2, et cetera, et cetera. The days will come upon you, often used as an Old Testament expression of coming judgment. It's just another time when Jesus refers to coming judgment. And what does he say? This day, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's five aspects there really quickly. Number one, verse 43, your enemies will throw up this barricade. And when you look at all of these five things, they were all fulfilled 40 years later. The empire of Rome came in in about AD 70 and fulfilled everything that Jesus had written. So they would build this barricade. And if you want to read a, a documented history on it, read the Jewish historian Josephus. Okay, his works are for free. You can Google Josephus and, and read these writings. And that's exactly what happened. Titus, General Titus, according to jo- Josephus in his writing, the Jewish war, it was the first feature. An enemy will come in and build a barricade. That's exactly what the Romans did in 70 AD. Second, they're going to surround you. It's exactly what the Romans did. And it started in 66 AD. The Jews had revolted against Rome. And that brought the Romans, and that led to the Roman siege in 70 AD. And the Romans built this great palisade, this barricade. The Jews burned it down, and they put up a big wall. Then they put their troops there, completely surrounding the city fully, cutting it off. Okay, you cut off all the food, you cut off all the water, you kill anyone that tries to come in and out. And that led to the third element, hem you in on every side. 
to press or to crowd from all sides. That's what happened. And number four, they will level you to the ground. It literally means to shatter against the ground, to smash against the ground. That is to say the city will then be sacked and flattened. And not just the city, but your children within you. It's not only talking about infants or little children. It's just talking about your, your sons and the, all the inhabitants. And that's what's going to happen. It exactly occurred 70 A.D., about 40 years after Jesus had said it would. And then you look at verse 44. They were not leaving you one stone upon another. <clears throat> Forty years later, the stones that made up this glorious city will lie on the ground as rubble. Five months the siege took, and the Romans overpowered the weakened Jews, starving Jews at this point. Things were so, like, horrendous and, and, and just sick that it's even documented that a mother ate her own child. So they killed everybody, children, women, adults, but they, they kept the strongest adult men. You know why? For the gladiator games. They destroyed the city, everything except the Western Wailing Wall and a few other sections, and they massacred everybody. Josephus writes this, while the sanctuary was burning, the temple, neither pity for age nor request for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike, were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and temple to be raised to the ground, leaving only the highest towers and a portion of the wall on the west. And our Lord concludes, verse 44, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Remember, I talked about the incarnation. The Son of God was among you, lived among you, loved you, performed the miracles, preached the gospel to you. You did not recognize it. And what a pertinent message for us today. Have we missed out on the time of our visitation? Do we really treasure Jesus? Do we understand what his sacrifice means for us in our lives? Do we know where we would be apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ? And, you know, I, I have some non-believing friends, and we get into some discussions, and some of the deepest discussions we'll get into is on the topic of suffering and the existence of evil in this world. And we, we get into some sincere discussions and still ongoing but one of the things I realize about myself is that I am always wanting justice. Wrongfully so at times. That's so much so that if we were to uh, Americanize the, the parable of the unmerciful servant, if you remember that, <clears throat> at the end of it, the, the servant gets thrown into, into prison after being forgiven because he wouldn't forgive another servant that owed him just a fraction amount of what he owed the king. And I think an Americanized version would be the guy from the bottom yelling, you are an unjust king. And I tell you what, study the holiness of God and the gospel beams with colors. The gospel would become more beautiful to you when you understand the holiness of God. And I challenge all of you to study that. Study the holiness of God. And when you do, the gospel will come to life. <clears throat> And uh, my closing challenge is, as people, we all know that we're all fickle. 
I'm fickle. Everybody in this room is fickle. Okay? We don't love Jesus as perfectly as we should. But I think we need to grasp that because the more we understand our depravity, the more beautiful Jesus becomes. I, can, I testify to that. The deeper I've understood the gospel, the more beautiful Jesus has become. The more meaningful his sacrifice becomes. So the challenge here is this, is when you read the Bible, focus on indicatives over imperatives. Okay? Imperatives are commands that scripture gives us, right? And we all, like, like we're all pragmatic. We're like, you know, give us the imperatives. Just tell me what to do, Jesus, and I'll do it. But when you look at all, especially Paul's writings, all his imperatives, and even Brad's sermon these past few weeks on the fighting of sin, that's all rooted in the, in the indicative, which is what God has done for you. It's not like, hey, just fight sin. No, it's like Christ died for you, all right? He rose from the dead. His spirit lives in you and empowers you. Now go fight sin. And what I want to challenge you, when you read the scriptures, focus on the indicatives. Just gaze at Jesus and look at how awesome and wonderful and beautiful he is. Amen? And then you'll know what to do. You'll know what sin that Jesus wants to deal with. You'll know what next step you need to take because you're focusing on the character and nature of this magnificent, wonderful, awesome God. Will you pray with me? So your eyes closed. I just wanted to read to you um, this account from a, a book called Blue Like Jazz written by Donald Miller. And he writes, a guy I know named Alan went around the country asking ministry leaders questions. He went to successful churches and asked the pastors what they were doing and why what they were doing was working. It sounded very boring except for one visit he made to a man named Bill Bright, the president of a big ministry. Alan said he was as big as life and listened to his questions without shifting his eyes. Alan asked a few questions. I don't know what they were, but as a final question, he asked Dr. Bright what Jesus meant to him. Alan said Dr. Bright could not answer the question. He said Dr. Bright just started to cry. He sat there in his big chair behind his big desk and wept. When Alan told that story, I wondered what it was like to love Jesus like that. I wondered quite honestly if that Bill Bright guy was just nuts or if he really knew Jesus in a personal way so well that he would cry at the very mention of his name. I knew then that I would like to know Jesus like that with all my heart, not just my head. I really felt like that would be the key to something. And um, after the closing prayer, if you, if you just, you know, these, the altars are open. If you want to pray, feel free to. And um, Jesus, we just, we love you. We want to know you like that. We want to be amazed by you. We too, Lord, when we hear your name, want to. Just be amazed.
And Lord, as we just look at this account of the triumphant entry in reality, just this humble coronation of a humble king, I pray that our hearts would begin to be prepared, Lord. And I know that in reality, every day and every week, we should be celebrating the realities of, of Good, Friday or Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Lord. And I'm just praying, God, though, Lord, you would just prepare our hearts that we would see you for who you are. Jesus, I don't have enough adjectives to describe you. And I think every attempt on our parts to describe you would fall short because there's always something more. And all I know is that one day in heaven, as we worship the Lamb of God, that's going to be our life. We're just going to be constantly amazed over and over and over and over again by who you are. And I can't wait for that day, Jesus. And I know that the reality of why I don't see you for who you are is because of my own sin. But I just thank you, Lord, that in spite of my sin, you died for all of us as sinners. And you welcome sinners to your table. So thankful for that, Lord. And Lord, I'm also praying that this reality would just spark a revival in our hearts that we would long to see those that don't know Jesus saved. Because all I know is that the judgment there that you talked about, eternal separation from God. God, I can't even fathom that, Lord. A godless existence. So God, I'm praying also that you would begin to just burn in our hearts a desire to see people saved, that we would also not think that People are ever too far from your outstretched arm. And I'm praying that we would not take to them tactics. But instead, we would just take Jesus to them. Because, Lord, I know that every person that has encountered you. Lord, just has left transformed. So thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. You're amazing. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen.